0: And then depending on someone's situation, depending on how they normally deal with problems, they may find themselves getting overwhelmed.
1: Hello and welcome to another in our Human Givers podcast series. I'm Jay Baker, part of the HG team, and today I'm going to be discussing our silent emergency suicide with Malcolm Hansen. Malcolm's a human-givens therapist who worked for nine years in the NHS in the West Midlands, where his work mainly involved treating cases that were demarcated from conventional services because of their complexity or severity. They involved things such as complex trauma and uh, a background of violence or criminality, and sometimes secondary care patients or trafficked individuals and asylum seekers as well. And at any given time, approximately half of Malcolm's client list presented with suicidal ideation. So we're extremely lucky today to have um, Malcolm here to talk to us, and Malcolm's also a tutor for the Human Givens College, where he delivers his How to Reduce Suicide Risk workshop live online. Hello Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us today. Your insightful and popular course, How to Reduce Suicide Risk, is is really very much needed um, right now as we've seen a huge surge in demand for suicide awareness intervention and prevention training during the coronavirus outbreak. And sadly, the effects of the pandemic are being disproportionately felt by the most vulnerable people in society and exacerbating factors that we know relate to suicide, such as the profound effect on the economy. Common themes for people expressing suicidal ideation include negative thoughts about the future and feeling as if they've got a reduced ability to cope, feelings of loss and also feeling like they're a burden and rumination as well, which of course we know can lead to depression. Such feelings of desperation can affect anybody, as we've seen in the news, and far too many people are dying by suicide. And I know, like me um, and everybody else at HG, you're really keen to prevent as many of these deaths as possible and to provide real practical help to equip people with the skills and insights that can really help them to support vulnerable people who are thinking about suicide, which is why we're here today. But before we start to explore and understand a little bit more about that, perhaps you could tell us um, some more about yourself and your experience of helping those people who were thinking about suicide.
0: Yeah. Hi. Hi, Jo. Thank you. Um, So I was in the army for 20 years and I served in many different places. And then as I was transitioning out from the army uh, into civilian life, I sort of heard about human givens, I was interested in sort of doing something along this line of work. So I started training in 2007, just as I was leaving uh, the military. And then fortunately, where I was in the West Midlands, there was a human givens pilot study starting in the NHS in 2008. And that was just before the, uh, the the program that became known as IAPT, Improving Access to Psychological Therapies, the, the basically the rollout of CBT into, into the NHS on a large scale, just before that came out. So it was a short-term pilot study, but it went well and developed into a permanent contract. And during my time there, um, I was working sort of alongside IAPT, but not part of it. Um, and then I found myself working at an NHS walk-in centre where I was seeing a lot of unscreened clients. And I was also seeing the clients that the IAP services, they, they weren't really designed for that. I, IAP was was designed to take a certain type of client base. And yes, I would see those clients too. But then when there were clients that were particularly complex, I was able to see those people as well. What it meant was I had quite a steep learning curve um, and the... I just remember looking at my screen on on during during that time, and any any clients expressing suicidal risk on on our uh, on the sort of IT system that had uh, outcome measures and how they scored on it, um, half would be had the little red indicator. So it was a very steep learning curve, but it did meant that I was able to take. The, the human givens training and reality test it uh, against uh, a whole spectrum of different clients.
1: So from your experience, um, Malcolm, what is it that usually drives somebody to that point of contemplating taking their own life?
0: I think if, if we had to summarise it in, in one word, there's the idea of hopelessness. And then if we wanted to just unpack that statement a little bit more, we could say that there's any number of starting points, as, as you yourself said in the introduction, there's the idea of economic factors Well, there can be any number of things that start to become a difficulty for somebody along the idea of mental health or well being. And then depending on someone's situation, depending on how they normally deal with problems, they may find themselves getting overwhelmed. Now, of course, people can have problems and people can feel overwhelmed, but the critical difficulty is is when they stop seeing the other side of it. They're unable to see through to future possibilities. And of course, in solution-focused work, we have the idea of the miracle question. If, if, If the problem was gone, what do you see yourself doing? And if one was to put that in the context of suicidal ideation, you could ask if you were to die, but then be able to come back, when would you come back? And the answer is normally, well, when the problem's gone. What it means is that people don't really want to die. They want the problem to go away, but they can't see how to make that happen.
1: That's really, really interesting. So when we think about Um, things like prolonged depression and loneliness and anxiety Um, and, and people not being able to see away through that, and as you just said, you know, thinking that actually they don't want to die; they want the problem to be gone. How can we help somebody to to overcome these 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 things?
0: Well, if we if we think about the idea of hopelessness, and then we sort of invert that and say, well, okay, what about the idea of hope? And then if we just condense it down to how do you start instilling hope in somebody? Well, of course, you've got the basic skills. Uh, somebody who's trained in human givens will be familiar with these key ideas. And a really simple one is de-arousal of the stress response, reducing stress so that they can be themselves again, so that their problem-solving abilities come back online, as it were, um, reducing complexity. Sometimes we can get sort of caught up in the weeds as can anybody. And it's, it's, it's often a good, a good idea just to be able to step back and stick to basics and be persistent and creative in their application. Um, And just look at look at how you connect with that particular individual. There's also just the idea of having the conversation. Um, We obviously have the uh, RIGAR acronym in human givens, uh, which is the structure around which we base uh, an ideal model of therapy. And the first letter in that the R is for rapport, just the simple act of building rapport with another human being so that a decent conversation can be had uh, is, is a really good start. Mm.
1: So obviously lots of people experiencing, um, varying degrees of, of mental health, uh, distress at the moment. Um, and you know, throughout the, the, the passage of time, but how do we know, um, that, that somebody is at the point, um, in their life where they really do need to, to seek help? What, what is it that tells us that this is now becoming a, a, a situation where it could be dangerous?
0: One, one thing we have to think about is, is just the caveat of um, circumstances, altering cases. Obviously, each case is going to be different. Um, and one variable to think about that perhaps many people don't is just the idea of access to means because we sometimes might think oh someone has suicidal ideation therefore they're out there looking for means but actually the the presence of means in their environment on a day-to-day basis might itself alter their perception of the world. We obviously have the idea of um, with depression we have that idea of the attributional style the three p's the way in which something is permanent, pervasive and personal, our thinking style starts to get altered. And of course, that can happen with the problems that you've been describing, um, uh, depression, anxiety and so forth. But of course, if you then put that attributional style together with suicidal thoughts, somebody's starting to get locked into something. Another variable to think about here is is the client's own experience of coping with that state of mind, because you you do get some people who um, find life difficult generally on a day-to-day basis, but they find a way of coping and working with it. And you do get some people where you can have an open discussion with them and they say, yeah, I go through these difficulties, but I know my own limits. I know when I'm, I know when things are getting dangerous for me." So, everything's uh, we've got to understand that things can get quite individualized. Um, fortunately, in the human givens uh, framework, we have the idea of how the mind works, we have the idea of trance states, locked states of attention, and you can see how hopelessness is linked to that idea of a locked state of attention because people can't look beyond their focused on very much on, on, on what's happening to them. Um, there's also the idea uh, of, th- there's there's an American clinical psychologist called Joyner, and he has these three areas, and the three domains he he talks of are someone feeling they're a burden, someone feeling alone, and someone not afraid to die, and the way in which they cross over, um, and any one of those in isolation might be um, able to, to, to get dealt with, but once they start to get combined in a certain way that that can be a very very dangerous situation for somebody and of course what I hope people with a background in human givens can start to see is that once again the regular everyday skills that they have in terms of teaching people to manage themselves psychoeducation separating the person from the problem can all be used in very, very simple ways just to help people unlock from that state of attention. Um, And for those people that aren't therapists, actually just the presence of another human being and instilling hope in the way that you might do on your day-to-day personal way when you're talking to other people is, is highly beneficial. But in and around this conversation, we've just got to be careful of the caveat about not becoming casualty yourself, because if somebody's going down a slippery slope and we reach out a hand, we've just got to make sure that we're on firm ground, too, and, and can pull them up to where we are.
1: Sure. Um, yeah. And, and I think, you know, that, that's something as, as human given therapists, we're, you know, that's very much part of our, our training isn't it and I, I think that's yeah. a cool thing for, for for people who aren't trained to have that awareness that they you know they need to be keeping themselves well and safe yeah. um uh, you know what's their what's their caring for friends or family who might be in these difficult circumstances
0: sure sure and and, and I can expand a little bit on the idea of of, of how do we know when how, how do people know when to seek help is that You can also see that with that thinking style that goes awry, that the three Ps, the personal, pervasive and permanent, that locked state of attention, it's very hard to monitor ourselves If we're in that state of mind, those two states of mind do not go together very well. The ability to stand back and observe and be self-reflective and at the same time have that locked state of attention that those aren't compatible. So this Mm -hmm. is where we come on to the idea of um, people listening to those who know them best. Um, There's the idea of of, of asking, you know, asking once, asking twice. Um, There's also just the idea of not not necessarily focusing on what people are doing, but how they are. And I think that does get lost sometimes um, any number of um, any number of things that we might read or hear about. Look at what a person may do or may not do. But if we take it down to the level of how people interact with each other, we perhaps should pay attention to how they do things. Somebody might be functioning and doing what they need to do. But how they do it might be done in a different way because they're coping in a different way. They're having to act differently because they're having to cope with a problem that's overwhelming them. Um, so, again, it's still having that simple conversation. Does the person have a perception of the future? Do they see themselves getting there? How do they see themselves getting there? And how are they doing rather than just what they're doing?
1: Yeah. And I guess that sort of, you know, uh, looks at signs that we as friends or family may need or colleagues of course may need to be looking out for um, in in other people because quite often you know um, one of the things you'll hear is that people say they weren't aware that the person was suffering until it was too late because they were functioning they were getting through the day they were doing the things that they needed to do and so that's one of the things that people can look out for is how were they doing it rather than just what were they doing
0: Yes, and of, and of course, with with what you're saying there, there's, there's the idea of context being a major factor, all the different ways in which people can relate to each other in the workplace, at home, and of course we have to account for how we live today, uh, we have an online persona, we have Instagram, we have people uh, projecting an image of themselves out there in the online world in order to get a series of likes. What that means is that different parts of us can be shown to different people. And you then have to wonder well, who gets to see the whole person? And it might be that somebody is displaying those risk factors. But because they're parceled up and segmented and they're displayed to different people, or different communities, nobody really gets to see the whole. And we can think about um, communities uh, in, in older times where you would have seen the whole person. You would go and be in the fields and go to church and do any of, any number of other things with the people in your community. And that would then translate across to similar, similar frameworks for that in other parts of the world. I've obviously used the UK example, you know, prior to the Industrial Revolution. And of course, that can still uh, correspond to the ways in which people do live their lives still. So if you're in a community or a culture where you have a good look at the entire person, I think it's a lot easier to pick these up the way that we live our lives today, generally from what you might call the sort of Western industrial model, um, we've kind of lost that. So then the question is, okay, who gets to see every single factor at play in in one individual? And that's probably um, few and far between, even if we think we know someone well. Um, Given that, the the, the question then is okay well what are the signs that we should look out for and I I think and this is just just my take on it I think with what we've said what we've said about the how what I've just been talking about in terms of how we sort of see different sides of people in different settings is that perhaps the subtle everyday cues are important and that's again the value of that ask twice idea that's now getting uh, wider, wider traction because it is easy to miss the cues. So things that I would think about uh, if I had to make a list would be rumination. You know, is is yeah, as you said, you know, the person might be functioning, but again, they might be dwelling on things. They might be taking longer to function. Um, their response to stress, are they more agitated than usual? Are they more numb? Have they been any recent life changing life-changing events uh, or, or changes in their life resulting in unmet needs? Again, back to that economic factor. So we, we, could be, we could be right next to somebody and we don't really know what their bank balance is. And yet that person might be having a, a lot of financial troubles that could trigger something. Um, we've then got the idea of how we might misuse our resources. The resources that nature's given us to sort of help with, with our needs out there in the environment, they might be getting misused. A little bit like the joiners model I mentioned earlier, where... Not being afraid to die is isn't isn't a problem in and of itself and we lord that when people risk their lives to help others but again when it starts to get steered in the wrong direction it can be lethal um, so that, that's what i just say say in that context
1: mm. and, and that's that's really interesting thinking about how we can misuse our resources and sort of made me think really about the, the barriers that we talk about in human givens the barriers that we have to, to getting our needs met and um, thinking about the toxic environment as well and I know that the you know if the environment is sick that can be a, a real trigger factor um, for, for people in terms of suicidal ideation so is there any way that we can help to be working with with clients with that
0: um, you you mean in terms of shaping the environment?
1: Yeah. So if they're in a if they're in a, um, a an environment perhaps at work or perhaps their home life yeah. where they just can't see any way beyond that um, ever ever being any different or, or or not being able to get out of that because of the financial implications of not being able to leave that role or the the implications of perhaps needing to to leave a particular relationship etc. Um, and and those factors uh, you know feeding into that.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's it, it's 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 really difficult because um, we are talking about the wider environment and you, the, the, the conversation could extend into things like, you know, politics. What is the ideal environment? Um, but on a on a day to day basis, I think we, we have the idea of people making sure that they get their needs met and these fundamental ideas about connecting with other people. Um, and uh, I, I I really think it's basically um, just just actually simple things. Back to back to the first point. Uh, I, I well not the first point, but a point I made at, at the start about the the sort of R of rapport. Actually, if we help to sort of cultivate some of these some of these relationships, um, just by building rapport, I think the other thing that I like is whilst there are uh, obvious organisations that people can go to. Um actually, you also get just ordinary everyday organisations where people meet up, and that keeps people safe. For example, with veterans, there's the, there's the Armed Forces Veterans Breakfast Clubs, which aren't there to prevent suicide, but I've no doubt that they do. Um, I also think, I'd, I'd like to think that the overall environment that we're in is changing slightly so that people are are more open to having this sort of conversation i'm not saying that everyone should go and engage in a course of therapy but actually people can communicate with another enough to to know that if there is a problem there are places they can go um the other thing is that perhaps also helping people to study the environment they're in how how does somebody know when they're in a toxic environment um when i was talking about whether or not we can get an entire view of someone that we think we know well well that does raise the question of whether or not that environment where we have been sort of sliced and diced online whether we realize there are problems with it because I think there might be people who might be Uh, living a lifestyle where they think everything's great everything's fantastic and it might actually be doing a lot of harm because they don't realize it so again we have those ideas of being able to step back reflect connect with others get different perspectives and different points of view
1: Mm -hmm.
0: if that that helps answer that yeah
1: yeah, absolutely so is there anything um you know in in particular there's there's a lot of um talk about the language that we use uh, around suicide. So is there anything in particular that we can do or, or say to help somebody um, who who is distressed to open up? um i know you you did uh, mention the um asking twice earlier and we we saw that on that recent documentary by by Raymond Kemp on the bbc and they discussed about um how asking um r u a k twice can can really help people to open up do you do you agree with that for one and and is there anything else that we can be doing to facilitate these conversations
0: i i i thought that was a really good documentary because i think with documentaries on suicide where they're where they're getting that personal angle it it can be quite a difficult thing to 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 judge because on the one hand you're trying to get the message across and not on the other hand not get sort of too too personal too overwhelming so I think that documentary was was really well done the only thing that I just and I think the ask twice is, is is a great idea and they actually had some really good examples in in that documentary context matters because if we say, if we sort of encourage somebody to ask twice, it does suggest that that person must open up to me and open up now. So, of course, it has to be carefully done because we want to encourage people to come forward. They, they might not necessarily want to speak to the person that's asking the question of them, and they might not want to speak there and then. We're back once again to the idea of the how, radically changing the what. Um, it was good to see that on the documentary, the people involved had a close connection, and I think when they, one example that I remember, it was done, as, as they explained, they had, a, they had a, good, a good outcome from somebody asking because it was done in the right place at the right time with the right people. Um, so one environment, sorry, one challenge is to create the right environment for the conversation. It's a little bit like the conversation we've just been having about the environment we're in and and how well we know what sort of environment we're in. Yeah. We're back once again to the idea of rapport as a, as a really important resource. You know, rapport is the foundation for therapy, but also rapport is one of, one of the resources on our list of um, human givens resources. We've also got the power of language. Now that's the main tool we have in therapy, but it is available to all. Um, we are, we are, hardwired for language it's a, it's something very unique to human beings there are obviously human givens workshops on uh, how to use language skills how to do reflective listening and they're open to anybody so whilst handling um, suicide risks should be something that, that therapists should really seriously consider as part of their training it's also the fact that well having a having a human being between, sorry, having a conversation between, between human, two human beings, one helping the other, and perhaps helping the other on some quite serious issues, it doesn't have to be very, very clinical. It can be very, very a very simple, ordinary human thing to do. But once again, we have the caveat of not becoming a casualty oneself and knowing, knowing when we've reached a limit point within what we can do. Um, and, and where else we might need to go to if things get more serious.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as you refer to the the, the language day that the um, that the Human Givens College puts on that, you know, really useful training um, for, for anybody. And I think on that day, you'd be able to understand um, ways that you can keep yourself safe as well when you're having those conversations. Um, so yeah, like you say, a, a really useful one. And I guess what I'm hearing coming through all of this is really about having that rapport, building the rapport with the person that you're talking to so that they do feel really heard and understood because it might be the first time um, and they, they might be quite surprised that somebody's actually having an open conversation with them um, about it and, and you know I guess um, helping them to look at ways that they can create communities for themselves. Um, and if we can help them to meet their needs in, in balance, um, it, it, it opens up the possibility for change, doesn't it? You know, it, it yeah. lays down that, that roadmap to hope.
0: Yeah. And, and I think sometimes um, rapport is is perhaps easier said than done in some environments. Going back once again to what you said about a potentially toxic environment, mm-hmm. those generally aren't very amenable to helping people build rapport if you get if you get the right sort of environment created then rapport between human beings is going to come a lot more easy because people won't be so much on their guard <laughs> how people relate to to each other won't be perhaps in a in a in a state of high emotion or high stress so it we're back once again to the environment we're in and does it foster the kind of rapport that we need for people to be able to have a decent enough conversation so that we can see the entirety of that, of that human being. Mm.
1: Mm. And, you know, by, if we can do that, then, um, you know, we're, we're able to, to work with, with the many tools that we have as, as human given therapists to, to be able to, to, to go in and, and take the hand and, and lead the person out, out to safety.
0: That's it. And, and, and this is one of the things that I, I really try to get across on the workshop is that um, you've, you've got your therapeutic training. There are some fundamentals within human givens. And when we start to take a look at suicide risk management, people will see that actually they've already got the tools there because there might be some people who who are doing their training or embarking on their training and they think ah I I couldn't I couldn't help someone if they expressed suicidal ideation during a session and what we show them is that actually actually they can it's just that if you they they, they haven't sort of looked at what they need to do is take a step back look at what they've already been taught to 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 do when helping people with depression anxiety and so forth and actually just slightly change the perspective and if they come from it with an understanding of okay well why do people have suicidal ideation what can we do about it and then we lay out the toolkit that they've already got we're not actually adding anything to those human givens ideas they're already there it's just teaching people how to use the tools and and when to use them
1: Absolutely. And I think your example of uh, of, you know, one of the, the HG adopted um, tools of the miracle question and, and framing it in the way that you did is, is absolutely brilliant. Um, and so w- we have a, a, a good idea um, as, as what we can do as therapists. But if, you know, as a, as a member of, of the public, um, what should we do if we're concerned about somebody? How can we reach out for support?
0: Yeah. And and. Uh... It's a good idea to know when someone has reached their limits in the conversation. So I'm saying, you know, people shouldn't be afraid to help other people, but to take care that they don't become a casualty themselves and to take care that they understand when they reach that limit point. So in terms of reaching out for support, just to make people aware that actually the basics are okay. Human beings with the right amount of support can generally self-write. People are very good at picking themselves up. Obviously, the fundamentals of checking their needs, checking their resources, not being afraid to have the conversation. But should somebody reach that limit point, should somebody feel that actually this is more than they can deal with at this time? Although fortunately, there are numerous organizations available. Um, the big one is the Samaritans. They, they, they do a terrific job. And I think the important thing is that people are made aware of exactly how the Samaritans work. So it's not just a case of saying, oh, go to go and look at the Samaritans online, look at their look at their number, but actually having a little bit of a conversation of why it's important. Because the work that Samaritans do, it allows people to be anonymous, but also allows them just to get through that danger point. Because it's a question of um, people struggling, and then the ideation might start to become dangerous, in which case they might just want to have an anonymous conversation with somebody. And and that's the important work that that, that the Samaritans do. So I I know that with some clients I've had, I will ask them if they've ever heard of the Samaritans, and a lot of them will say, yeah, I've heard of it, don't know much about it. So it's taking the time out just to talk them through it so, so they're more comfortable about making that call if they need to. There's also an organization called Papyrus, which is aimed at preventing suicide in young people. And it might not sound like much, but with those organizations, they have people there and they have people available to have a conversation and they save so many lives just through having a conversation. In addition to organizations like that, um, it's also just seeing what, what the person themselves wants. Because I talked a little bit about breakfast clubs, you know, there's any number of ways in which people can connect with something that might not have an overtly sort of clinical beneficial effect, but it does under the surface. And so you've got the balance between local organizations, national organizations, formal, informal, you know, this is this something formally designed to, to do a sort of clinical type task? Or does it just sort of do it informally? And what does the person feel, feel an affinity for? Because we've got to make sure that that person, when there's no one else around them, when they are isolated, is going to feel able to make that connection. So it's got to be something that they, that they feel able to do. Um, and there are more and more options available. There are a spectrum of ways to connect, uh, as well as a spectrum of organizations. People can connect via text if they want to. They can make a phone call. or they. And some of these organizations obviously do things face to face. There's also one's GP. Uh, it's, it's an obvious thing to say, you know, if you're feeling unwell, go and see your GP. A lot of that might depend on how the person feels about their relationship with their GP. Uh, some, some GPs might have a particular specialization in mental health. Some might not. Some might have a have a very good rapport with their patients. Others, not so much. So just see if the person is, is able to check in with your, their GP. And then, of course, you've got people in the field of psychotherapy, counseling, whether it's statutory or private. And um, just having a look at them. So, so there are there are a lot of ways to connect and there are a lot of different organisations for people to connect with.
1: Absolutely. And I guess it's about those people who are, who are caring and supporting for the person who's in distress. Um, not feeling like it's a, it, it's not a valid conversation to have, that whoever they reach out to will, will listen to them and will talk to them and, and will will support them and, and signpost them in the right direction.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, it's the power of language. And if you, know, if, if you can speak, well, you have a tool that you can use, and it's, it's, it's just worth thinking about how you might use that. And once again, um, it's great that the Hummingens College has workshops which are open to all. So people might feel that they're stuck on a binary. They might say, well, actually, I'm not a therapist. What can I do? Well, actually... You know, you can just maybe take a bit of time out, perhaps do some language training and it will just just help you perhaps um, should you find yourself in one of those situations. And it's definitely worth doing because we use language all the time. We're hardwired for language. And if you've never done any training in how you might listen to the language spoken by other people and how you yourself might use your own language, well, that's a that's it, it. That's a real shame because it's a, it's it's not just okay in, in therapy. We think of it as perhaps a, a tool in our toolbox, but it, but as human beings, it is fundamental to how we are. So we really should pay attention to being able to use language artfully, and it's just encouraging people that you know you 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 don't have to do training as a psychotherapist. You can just do one or two courses, and that might really, really help you in a in a difficult situation.
1: Absolutely. And you know, having that understanding of, of language can help in in the many different roles we occupy in our lives, um, in, in communicating at work and at home, um, and, and also with these really important um, uh, conversations like this. Um, and and can make such a big difference to how um, those three P's that you referred to, how personally, how pervasively and how permanently somebody
0: views something in their life yeah yeah um and it's 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 about helping people see this as something that they can engage with because um in the same way that clients will sometimes see the problem as this huge monolith that they can't move again because their attention is locked people trying to help clients or patients or friends might also see the problems in monolith. And what we're saying is, actually, no, when you start to just sort of look behind what the monolith is structured on, it can be broken. There are there are ways of, of making fractures in what appears to be a monolith, stepping back and saying that it isn't quite this unmovable thing. And the really good thing is that as, that as well, people people going through a difficult time do respond really well to, well to help you know if somebody's being swept away by a river and they just see somebody reaching out their hand instinctively their hand will shoot up to meet it so in the same way there are we we can appeal to a to a certain part of a human being again just through just through language just through rapport which are resources that we have as human beings natural skills that we have we can make that connection and encourage people to reach out to us as well.
1: Thank you, Malcolm. That's all for our, our questions today. But is there anything else that, that you think would be of value to, to add?
0: The, the only other thing that I've got to add is that um, uh, there's more and more workshops, um, to, to my knowledge, my perception, are uh, focusing on the idea of medication and, and the part that it plays. And it's just to say that we've been talking today about how people interact with each other. We've been talking about language skills. And we have to understand that for, for some people, there are other agencies involved, other organizations. And sometimes the person that you're talking to might be on a, uh, a regime of medication. And it might be that actually they are they have not been taking their medicine or perhaps their medicine might have side effects. And. Um, And it's just to to make people aware that if they are having a conversation with someone or or helping someone, there might be something else off to one side, which has to be taken into account when we're thinking about how we help other people, and that's medicine. Obviously, as therapists, we we don't do medicine, but a lot of people who are in distress might be seeing a, a specialist to receive some sort of medication and we just have to make sure we factor that in to to our to our understanding of what's happening for that person mm,
1: absolutely um, and i think you the the workshop you're referring to is marion brown's
0: that's it that's it yeah, and, and marion brown has done, done done so much work in of uh, in looking at looking at medicine and medication from the therapist perspective because obviously you know we can't just suddenly all train ourselves to be experts in medicine but then as has happened so often with a lot of different therapists especially in the human givens community people specialize in certain areas and marion brown for many many years has uh, really been helping to educate Uh, her peers, uh, both with uh, presentations, both with interviews, both with written material um, about medication and what we as therapists or helpers should be aware of with regard to that. So yeah, Maren Brown is definitely worth looking at
1: lovely thank you so much Malcolm unfortunately we've run out of time today but if you would like to find out more about how you can help reduce the the risk of suicide and the practical steps that you can take details of Malcolm's one day workshop which is delivered live online um, can be found by visiting humangivens.com forward slash college or you can give the college a call on 01323 811 690 for more information and to book your place Thank you so much for talking to me about such an important topic, Malcolm, and I'm sure your knowledge and advice has really helped our listeners today. And thank you everybody for listening until next time. Bye-bye.